0: ready so are you as uh, your self centered thought ready to get smashed again this morning <laughs> yeah we're getting into the juicy part of the the chapter yeah where we when uh, we talked a long time about equalizing self and others okay and now we're getting we're going to get into the faults of the self-centered mind so if you ever thought that it was your best friend, that view is gonna, uh, be smashed. So get ready and, uh, build your defenses. <laughs> no, my self-centered mind is good. It helps protect me. It makes me know that I am I and I'm here and I can't control the world. But by the end of my life, I will be able to. <laughs> or that's why I want to become a Buddha. Then I can. <laughs> yeah. Then I can control everybody. Yeah. So. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so uh, you know, our refuge in our self-centered thought is uh, is going to get challenged a little bit. Yeah. Okay, so let's start out with uh, taking refuge in the Buddha Dharma and Sangha, uh, remembering where our refuge really is, and uh, then all the sentient beings around us. So, as Geshe Tavke mentioned mentioned uh, a few days ago, you know these are the two fields that are most important for our spiritual progress. And the Refuge field, the, the field of wisdom that will guide us and the field of, um, of compassion of sentient beings. Let's cultivate our motivation. So imagine that Shanti Deva is your roommate. And he also shares the same office you do. So Shanti Deva sees everything you do and comments on it. Not to criticize you, but out of compassion. But check what your feeling is, what your response is. Are you being really transparent and admitting to yourself and to Shantideva how you do things, how you think? Or is your behavior completely guided by, I want to look good, I don't want to get criticized? So you do things that look good, but not so much because you care about other people, but because you don't want to get criticized. Now, can you pull that one off in front of Shanti Deva? I don't know about you, but if I can see through my garbage, surely Shantideva can too, and will call out my mistaken motivations. But can I hear it when he does that, or do I clam up shape, clam up tight and defend myself? and take on more and more this thing of, I've got to be good, I've got to be good, I don't want to get criticized. And where does that mind get you, the mind that wants to look good, but not really because they care about other people. imagine imagine that you care about others you care about your roommate you care about your office maids you care, you care about other cindy beings what would it feel like to, to do things out of genuine affection and care not out of fear not out of wanting to look good. What would the difference in how you feel in your mind about others and about yourself, what would that be like? Imagine that. And then imagine just during your whole day having what does it feel like to have that mind that really cares about others, that cherishes them. Not just wanting them to have sense pleasure in this life and be comfortable in this life, but a mind that cares about the fact that they're going round and around in samsara until now endlessly. So then in order to really help them, we have to go beyond our own self-centeredness. And we need the wisdom-realizing reality as well. and skillful means. And so make a determination to develop those. And since that is the path to Buddhahood, then you have the motivation to attain Buddhahood for the benefit of others. So that's body cheetah. What was your, your feeling? Was it easy or hard to uh, imagine having Shandideva as your roommate and office mate and to uh, you know, be transparent and to really you know figure out how to change your mind so you really care about others? Sandy Deva can see right through you know that thing and and I think in some ways we're so well trained to do things because we want to look good because we don't want to look get in trouble yeah and that motivation just comes off all the time it's not really to care about others it's I don't want to get in trouble I don't want somebody to criticize me. I want to look good so I can get ahead. I didn't remember much from my college education, although I'm glad I had it, and I know that it benefited me. But one thing I do remember was from uh, English Lit. uh, There's a T.S. Eliot quote. I can't remember much of anything else. But this quote really struck me. This was long before I met Buddhism. And it's, um, The last temptation is the greatest treason to do the right thing for the wrong reason. And that quote just grabbed me. It's like, yeah. You know, Acting with a corrupt motivation to do something that looks good—you're doing the right thing, but the wrong reason—and how treasonous that is um, to our own our own ideals, our own values. Yeah, we're going very much against them, but we so often can't even see it. And when Shantideva, can you imagine Shantideva pointing that out to you all day long? Oh my goodness. Can you give give me a break? Can't I do anything right? You know, but he's not trying to smash you and humiliate you and embarrass you. He's trying to bring something to our awareness. So that we can change in a good way. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's a question here. Arhats have abandoned self grasping, but have subtle self centeredness. How do Arhats overcome coarse self centeredness given the practicing the methods to cultivate very cheetah? Bodhicitta are the way to demolish the self-centered attitude. There's different levels of self-centeredness, and so uh, one level, as as I see it, is uh, is the level that is attached to the eight worldly concerns. Yeah, and that's kind of uh, an attachment to self. You know, we want pleasure for the self. We want to avoid pain for the self. And that's very, co- a very coarse kind of self-centeredness. Um, <laughs> can you imagine that? That's the coarse one. Yeah. Yeah. But the, uh, the subtle one is wanting to attain, uh, awakening for ourselves alone, not caring about others, um, That's the subtle one, you know, the self-centeredness that says, I'm happy becoming an Arhat, and good luck, everybody else. I wish you well. Ciao. I'm going into nirvana. Bye-bye. Yeah, I'll write your postcard telling you how great it is, but I'm not going to send you a ticket. (laughs) Yeah? So uh, how do we... Yeah, when we say uh, cultivating bodhicitta is the way to demolish the self-centered thought, I think bodhicitta works both against the coarse and the subtle kind of self-centeredness. But it's really aimed towards the subtle one. The coarse one, the A-worldly concerns, is something all Buddhist practitioners are working against. You know? And uh we can't ignore that one and say, oh, I'm working on the subtle self-centeredness. You know, I want to become a Buddha for the benefit of all sentient beings, but, you know, first I have to have my banana split and, you know, and get ahead in the world and da-da-da-da-da. Okay. Okay, that answer person who, yeah. Okay. Because, you know, you can see that that bodhicitta does help with the core self-centeredness, you know, because just as you're about to dig into your banana split that you paid, I don't know how much money for, you start thinking of people who don't have much food, and that that same amount of money could be used in another way. And besides, you already weigh 400 pounds, so you don't really need the, the um, banana split. Yeah. So you do what that That one, you know, you know the story about the monk who, when they were passing out yogurt, yeah, I told you that story, yeah, that uh, you know, during pujas, they give out the offerings to everybody. So they were giving, and they serve meals very often. Um, so they were giving out uh, yogurt, and one monk was sitting in the back, and he was watching everybody else get yogurt and wondering if there was going to be enough of for him you know and when they finally got to him and they were going to put the yogurt in his bowl he said oh well thank you i've already eaten a lot and that's because every time the yogurt got put in everybody else's bowl he imagined eating it yeah so um yeah so you can imagine eating banana splits <laughs> See how many you you uh can imagine without getting a stomach ache, <laughs> you know that really rich fudge, yeah yeah I think even just imagining eating that many after a while you'd feel kind of crummy, don't you think? Try it, let me know. So I'm going to review the last verse. We stopped on 111. Okay, so although the basis is quite impersonal, through constant familiarity I have come to regard the drops of sperm and blood of others as I. Okay, so what's the basis? It's the drops of sperm and egg of other people, our parents, okay? And so uh, we got those, and then through familiarity with that and all the food that we've eaten, um, we developed the notion of I on the basis of that. But everything that the body is composed of, the sperm, the egg, all the food, Everything that the body is composed of was given to us by others. Yeah. So if you look at it, there's nothing really personal about our body. There's nothing mine about this body. It sure feels like there is. You know, my body, my dearest possession, because this is the last thing we give up in, in our life, you know. Okay, you get rid of your bank account and your car and everything, but my body, that's me or that's my, you know, that possession proves I exist. So I'm clinging on to it. And Shandideva says, actually, it doesn't belong to you. Yeah, sperm, egg, lots of food. We didn't give all that to ourselves. It all came from others. And after we die, we can't take the body with us. Yeah, the worms have a really good meal. That's why I don't want my body put in a, um, uh, you know, what? Well, no, the coffin. Most co- I don't know how long it takes a coffin for to decay. If you have a very simple one, it might. But there's something now, yeah, like a vault or something like that. Because I know when my when my mom died, we went and we just we wanted the coffin, and they said no. In our cemetery, you have to have. Some other bigger box you put the coffin in, you know, to put it in the in the ground. Yeah, it's very expensive to die in America. Yeah, really, it costs at least ten thousand dollars. You know, and hmm? yeah, twenty thousand depends what kind of uh, cat you know coffin you get. Yeah, my mom just had plain one. But, you know, if you get a fancy mahogany one with really fancy, um, handles and everything and silk on the inside and satin on the inside and they cost. Okay. You know, anyway, um, you know, it, the, the worms are going to eat it and I don't want it stuck in some kind of concrete box. I mean, might as well make use of it and let somebody have lunch. Yeah. So the worms have lunch, and you know. Why not? I mean, when we die, we have no use for this body. So why do we cling so much to it? Yeah. Yeah, and the answer is Familiarity. But sometimes that answer doesn't satisfy us. Yes, familiarity, but it is mine and I feel its pain and pleasure. I feel its pain and pleasure. And then we create we create an I, you know. That I that, you know, is the at the center of the universe that we bow down to and do everything it wants include stupid things because often what that self existent i want you know what it uh, energizes what it uh, spurs on is afflictions and then we do stupid things Right? Yeah. But see, see, everybody's saying, yes, I do stupid things. But if I were to look at you and say, you do stupid things, what? <laughs> I don't do stupid things. Interesting, isn't it? You can say it about yourself, but I can't say the same thing. <laughs> Yes, that, that's why Milarepa had his hand on his ear, just like you. Yes, I want to hear the praise. No, I don't think that's quite it. <laughs> you know, I don't think that's what Jetsun Mila's asking for. <laughs> okay. 112. So in the same way, why should I be unable to regard the body of others as I, if it's just a thing of familiarity, and this thing I regard as I, although there's nothing in it that came from me, then why can't I regard others' bodies as I? Hence, it is not difficult to see that my body is also that of others. So why can't I see others' bodies as I, and my body can be others' body. Why not? If it's just a thing of familiarity. Yeah. So can we train our mind to look at others' bodies as with the same care and concern that we have for this thing and say, Oh, somebody else, you know, this person has a stomach ache. This person, you know, is hungry. Except that instead of saying this person, you say I. Because you can see others' bodies as I. And you can see that others, yeah, you can see others' body as I. And you can see that your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to others, okay? And so if you have, uh, you know, compassion for others, then this body gets used to benefit other living beings who in your mind start out being less important than you, then you meditate to get as important as you, and then you go beyond that, to they are more important than me. Now, how do you get that others are more important than me? Because that is totally the opposite of what we feel now, which is I am most important. Okay. So how do we get there? Well, what's the big stumbling block that we have to... Get beyond be, before we could cherish others more, as much as, or even more than we cherish ourselves. What's the biggest stumbling block? Yeah, it's the self-centered thought. Okay. So we have to look closely at the self-centered thought because our self-centered thought, it's, uh, it's a Big liar, okay? Yeah, and uh yeah, like some other people, <laughs> you know, is going to have to go testify in front of the grand jury. Yeah. No, I didn't do it. I am innocent. This is a witch hunt. My self-centered thought is wonderful. It really cares for everybody else beyond me. I have never done anything wrong. I am totally magnanimous. I work for the benefit of all sentient beings. This is a witch huh? Why are you call, ca- asking me to testify in front of the grand jury? Yeah, who's the head of the grand jury? Shanti Deva. <laughs> yeah and you're not going to pull one over on Shantideva, forget it. Yeah, so as much as we try and explain how our self-centered thought is necessary, how it's our friend, how there's no fault with it, Shantideva is going to sit there and go, Oh, yeah. Okay. And then you're going to get indicted. Yeah. You fool caring for yourself alone and not caring about others. What are you doing? Yeah. That that's what we have to look at when we talk to our self-centered thought. Okay. So instead of seeing our self-centered thought as who we are, that the conventional I and the self-centered thought are totally union oneness, okay? There's me, the conventional I, yeah, that exists, and the self-centered thought that we put out here. Okay, there's that self-centered thought. And it whispers in our ear, I'll take care of you, listen to me, and you'll get everything you want. And we go, ooh that's my friend, it looks out for me, it's going to give me whatever I want, I like my self-centered thought, it's going to protect me. If anybody criticizes me, it's going to lash out at them. If I want to do something and somebody, it's inconvenient to somebody else, self-centered thought is going to support me and say, yeah, go do it. Don't care about the other person. Yeah. Do you see that in yourself? Do you see sometimes when you're trying to, uh, when you're at the point, of uh, uh, am I going to it's in small things, you know, will I uh there's going to be a swarm for something? Will I join in the swarm, or will I be too too busy doing something else? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, at that point, that little point of, well, maybe I should go. They need help too. I don't feel like it. Yeah. So who whispers in your ear when you're at that point? It's the self-centered mind saying, you're tired. You, you joined the swarm, uh, five years ago. That, that's, (laughs) that's enough. That's enough. Yeah. You need to rest now. And then we, uh, salute ourselves. No, it goes down, right? Hello, my saluting teacher. Like this? Yeah, like that. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm getting better, yeah. So, yeah, we salute our self-centered thought. Aye, aye, (laughs) ma'am. And then we go do what we want. And, you know... When somebody says, uh, we were counting on you being there. Oh, I was terribly busy. Yeah, I'm very sorry. But you guys did such an excellent job. This is wonderful. Yeah. Next time I'll, I'll join you. But you do such good work, you don't really need me anyway. Okay. So... That self-centered thought, it's very, it knows how to scheme. Yeah, it knows how to scheme, and it schemes. And it does its best to pull the wool over everybody else's eyes. And sometimes, you know, we can fool other people and look good in front of them, and they think we're marvelous. But the problem is we can't fool karma. There's no way to fool karma. We can rationalize and justify and deny all we want, and the law of karma says, okay, you did this, this is the result. Yeah. The law of karma is what is it, the the late lady justice? Who's holding? Is what, what? do they call her? You know, it looks like she's she's blind here, but she's holding the scales. Yeah. Do they call her Lady Justice, or it's, she has some name? You know what I'm talking about, though. Yeah. You see. Right, right. But it's it's drawn as a person. What the, with holding the scale, but she's blindfolded. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, there's a name for her. So, um, you know, so karma, karma is like that. You know, there's, there's, you can't bribe karma. <laughs> you know, you can't talk your way out of karmic results by, you know, pulling the wool over. You know, karma's eyes. Yeah. Uh, so, we can't fool karma. We can fool other living beings. And our self-centeredness does a very good job of that. Yeah. We can do wonderful jobs of deceiving other, other people. I talk, let me give you, this is a, a kind of a wowy example, but when I lived in Singapore, I got to know one family, and uh, you know they were both university professors, and their daughter was uh, um, she was in law school, I think, and or getting her PhD in something, and she fell in love with some guy who was an economist, and she brought him home to meet her parents. Okay, And you know, was raving about how wonderful he was and everything. And so the father said, "Well, what do you think about John Kenneth Galbraith? He's a very famous economist. This guy, her, her his daughter's boyfriend, had no clue who John Kenneth Galbraith was. He had put on this show of being a totally different person. That she fell in love with and was about to marry. And he lied. I mean, that's a pretty big lie, isn't it? Yeah. So that's that's what our self centered thought does. It it tells these kinds of lies. Yeah. And then because it pleases our our, you know, our Self-centeredness pleases our self-centeredness, so we believe the lies we tell ourselves. Yeah. But the point here is that the self-centeredness is not our, our big friend. It's our big enemy. Yeah. It's telling us to do the right thing for the wrong reason or the wrong thing for the wrong reason, which is even worse. Yeah. And so, you know, when you do those of you who are doing the prison work, you really see this when people tell you their stories. You know, you under the influence of some affliction and then you do some nutty thing and then you the whole rest of your life based on something you did for five minutes maybe or half an hour the whole rest of your life you threw away. And you you also damaged other people's lives, the whole rest of their lives, for a little bit of pleasure. Okay, so we say, oh, well, I'm not a criminal, you know, I don't rape and murder people. Okay, that's good, I'm glad you don't. You wouldn't live here if you did. <laughs> yeah, but um you know, but but the self-centered thought is behind both both of those, okay. And uh, so it is not our friend. So one good way to, you know, it, we have to look at this over and over again. So especially, uh, you know, when we do purification practices, you're doing your, your prostrations, you're doing Vajrasattva, you're doing mandala offerings, you know, Dhorti Kadra or whatever you're doing, okay? Trying to do some intense purification. And you know how when you're doing that, uh, you're really thinking about things that you did in this life and the things that, you know, for sure you did in a previous life, but we don't remember that. Because, they, I mean, previous lives are beginningless, so who knows what in the world we've done. They've been there, done that, everything in samsara. So you're purifying, and then when you really think of those, like, you know, in a previous life, I acted like fill-in-the-blank is acting right now. And this is somebody that you look at who you don't have any respect for because of how harmful their behavior is. And you think, you know, in a previous life, I acted like that too. Yeah, So that's why, you know, when you do 35 Buddhas, you're confessing all these things. And our mind first says, well, I didn't do all those. And the Uhula prayer afterwards, yeah, oh, I didn't do that, that stuff is terrible. Oh, well, yes, we did. That's why we're still here in samsara. So you start thinking about that. And like, I once had a mind that was acting like this. Yeah. I once was to choose, to choose, uh, one venerable here's favorite person. I once was, uh, Tucker. And I, and I, Tuck to lie. Tuck, 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 tuck. And I lied and I criticized and I cheated and I deceived uh, all for my reputation and for the big buck. Yeah, I did that. Ugh. Yeah, we can't remember that previous life, but you know, somewhere in the continuum of what of the merely designated I, that I acted like that. And so you feel like, I really want to, you know, I need... It gives you some energy when you're doing your prostrations. It gives you some energy when you're reciting Vajrasattva because you think, oh, that I was like, I don't want to be like that. You know, that's disgusting. So this is a good way to, when there's people that you look at that you just don't respect, that you think are disgusting, don't, the person isn't disgusting, their behavior is. And I, in my previous life, have had that same behavior. And that's why I'm doing prostrations and reciting mantra to purify. Okay. And, you know, that gives you some energy and you really begin to see, okay, why did I act like that in a previous life? Well, the same reason why somebody I look at in this life is acting that way. Yeah, completely ruled by my self-centered thought, not caring beans about anybody else. In fact, taking delight in lying to them and, you know, deceiving them and thinking that I am so great because I am able to stir people up to to do, you know, things for me. Look how great I am, how powerful I am. And that's all motivated by my self-centered thought. So that self-centered thought not only harms other people, and not one person, but millions, gazillions of people. Yeah. I mean, one person, the influence, if you have a microphone in front of you, well, not me, but, you know, <laughs> other people, uh, you know, the influence can go all over the world and screw everybody up. Okay. I once did that under the influence of my self-centered thought, so I harmed others, and the karma I created from doing that is like, and I'm going to experience the result of that karma, you know, and they're not going to have banana splits in the hot hell or the curled hell, you know. So, is my self-centered thought, my friend? is it looking out for me when it's motivating me to create the karma for every single suffering I experience? Yeah? Is, is, that, is that self-centered thought, my, my good friend? Why am I listening to it? Yeah? I am stupid. I'm listening to what harms me. Mm -hmm. So so what you're doing is you're starting to see the faults of the self-centered thought, the faults of the mind that says, I am more important than others. I want to do what I want to do, and don't tell me otherwise. I am always right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not only always right, but I'm also talented and gorgeous and rich and everything else. Yeah, I'm really rich. <laughs> and this isn't even mine. Okay. So, you know, when you start looking at your own experience, you really see, boy, this self-centered thought is, you know, it's worse than Tucker. It lies more, you know, and it damages. It's really damaging me as well as damaging others. So, you know, what kind of attitude do I want to create that's going to counteract this self-centered mind? Yeah, it's the mind that cherishes others. Okay, and then you contemplate, uh the kindness of others and have a sense of gratitude and appreciation for them not of obligation oh, I have to repay their kindness I don't want to but I have to Shanti Deva said so <laughs> so I better do it Otherwise, he's going to clobber me again. <laughs> yeah. No, you start looking and like, wow, all the good th- good things I have in my life come from other people. Yeah. And then self-centeredness—it's not going to—it's not going to take this lying down. Self-centeredness is going to put up a good fight. It's—it's. It's, Like the Russians against against the Ukrainians. You know, the Russians aren't saying, Oh yeah, you're right, Ukraine, this is your land. Russia we're gonna use some Iranian drones and bomb your your residences and your hospitals and your orphanages and destroy this country so that we can possess it. Yeah, you're gonna just you're gonna possess a lot of rubble that you've just destroyed. Okay. So, our self-centered thought is, it's not going to roll over and say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, I guess I've, I've gotten some happiness out of others, but not all of my happiness. My happiness came because of me, because I worked hard. Yeah. And you've got to work hard in this world to be something. And I worked hard, and I picked myself up by my own bootstraps, even though I didn't have any boots. Right. Yeah. Because I talked somebody else into giving me their boots. So that's how I picked myself up, by my own bootstraps. They're actually somebody else's, but don't tell that other guy that I cheated him and took his boots. Yeah. So you, you know, you start seeing, Oh, yeah, everything good I have come from others. Yeah. Anybody here worried about having lunch today? No, I don't think anybody's worried. We know we're going to have lunch. You don't even think twice about, am I going to have lunch today? You know you're going to have it. Yeah. You don't know if you're going to like everything. <laughs> but you know that there's going to be food to eat. Yeah. We don't doubt that. Not for one nanosecond. Yeah. Yeah. And yet you know how many people on this planet do not have that that uh, complacency to know that they don't even need to think about food it's going to magically appear in front of them yeah and where did this food come from yeah did we make it did we earn it? Yeah, where did it come from? Yeah, it came from farmers. It came from migrant workers, some of them underage children, migrant workers, you know, picking fruits and vegetables out in the sun. Yeah, if you eat meat, yeah, where did my lunch come from? Oh, somebody else donated their body. Did I ask them if they want to donate their body for my lunch? No. I just assume that they should. Yeah. Isn't that what's happening when you eat meat? You know, that's somebody else's body. What are you going to say if somebody comes and says, you know, I'm hungry. Will you donate your body for my lunch? Oh, no way. Okay. But we begin to see that if, you know... That everything good we have in our life came from others. You know, we think we're so smart. Don't you think you're smart? You don't just think you're smart. You know, you're smart. You know, you know it, especially if you have a few people, pieces of paper, you know, that say that you're smart. Yeah. Yeah. That's all you need. Piece of paper. Yeah. That means you're smart. I won't tell you what I did when I got my piece of paper. No, I won't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Cause last time I told you something about my past, you all were horrified. <laughs> so now I'm not gonna tell you anything. Okay. Got it for check my reputation. Uh, so, but, but look, you know, you got this piece of paper, but that says that you know things. And if you know things, you're smart. Except if you know how to, uh, uh, do skateboarding really well, and that kind of knowledge doesn't count as being smart. Okay. Unless there's an Olympic sport for uh, skateboarding. And then if you get to the status where you can skateboard in the Olympics, then you're smart and you're worthwhile. Okay. But the rest of us who can't skateboard at all, I don't know, maybe some of you can. You can skateboard. Oh, very good. (laughs) I rejoice. But you can't do it here because all the the paths have gravel on. Them. Oh too bad. What suffering. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can't even stand on a skateboard. But I got a piece of paper. Yeah. Yeah. So um so when you think, you know, everything I know. Even you know how to skateboard. Even you know, you know, chemical engineering and electrical engineering and you can make pages and pages of spreadsheets. Yeah, we weren't born with that knowledge. Yeah, somebody taught us. Someone taught us, yeah. When we were born, we couldn't even say, I'm hungry, please feed me, yeah, or I'm too hot, please take the blankie off. Uh, we couldn't say anything. We couldn't even ask and say please and thank you. We just demanded, and somebody gave us what we wanted. Because if they didn't, we wouldn't be alive today. And we wouldn't know anything today. But just the fact that we know how to speak. You know, one of the, the things that, again, something we take so much for granted, I know how to speak. Yeah. Did you come out of the womb? Hi, mom. Hi, dad. What's for lunch? <laughs> you know, we didn't come out of the womb talking. Huh? Everything was given to us. Everything. Yeah. We came out of the womb one hundred percent broke, totally broke, and totally dependent on other living beings' kindness just to stay alive. There's no way as an infant that we could stay alive by ourselves. Absolutely no way. I mean, you've all been around babies and think, you know, can that baby stay alive by itself? Impossible. So, believe it or not, we were once upon a time babies, totally dependent on other people to do everything for us and especially to educate us and teach us everything we know and teach us how to, to be good citizens. Teach us how to basic manners. Whether we learn those or not is another question, but people taught us to say please and thank you, which I think are two of the most important words that we ever learned. Yeah. Please and thank you because it shows our interdependence with others. No, and it's true. Everything that we have and know and do, and it all came from others. So, cherishing the source of our happiness should be something that we automatically do, shouldn't it? Yeah. When you think that all your happiness comes from others, we always cherish what gives us happiness. So, cherishing others makes perfect sense. Yeah. Cherishing our enemy that lies to us and deceives us, that doesn't make any sense at all. Okay, so how do we overcome the self-centeredness? We see it for what it is, you know, and then the antidote, recognizing where our happiness really comes from. And that's from other sentient beings. Okay. So we all hopefully had a good night's sleep. Where did your bed come from? Where did the room that you sleep in come from? Where did the money to buy the materials for the bed and the room come from? Yeah. What about your blanket? Where did that come from? Did you ask any sheep if you could borrow their their fur? Not borrow it. Steal it. And sell it for your own profit. Huh? So, you know, to, to really spend some time thinking about the source of our happiness, uh, you know, and our good karma plays a big role in that too. How did we create the good karma? The result of which we're now experiencing. It wasn't by being self-centered <laughs> and just looking out for ourselves. Yeah. It was about being kind, being generous, holding ethical conduct. Yeah, having fortitude in confront of difficulties. Okay, so, so you know, this is is Dharma is so practical. Yeah, I mean, it's just learning to look at our own experience with a realistic uh, eye instead of a blinded, distorted, contorted, you know, view. But really look at where where does my happiness come from? Not me. Yeah, maybe some good karma in the past. But I didn't grow the food I'm going to have for lunch. I didn't cook it. I'm not even cleaning up after it. Yeah, or taking the garbage out. I just spent the, the morning, you know, petting the cat and mumbling some things and walking around and you know, getting to be important, sitting in front of a room. Yeah. Uh, and then a lunch, you know, that I'm expecting that I have the right to criticize because it's going to be rice and beans again. So, you know, to really sit and think, where, where does my happiness come from? Yeah, it's cold outside. How come I'm warm inside? Who made this heating system? Yeah, I don't even remember what the guys looked like who put in the heating system in this building. Any of you remember what they looked like? Yeah, you do? I remember what the contractor looked like, but the heating guys? No, you remember? I took huh? I took videos of them. Oh yeah, okay. So you would. <laughs> Yeah. How about the people who put down the carpet? Well, we know them better from Floors or Us. Yeah. They've been out a few times. Who painted the walls? George. George painted the walls? Only him? Hmm? Oh. Yeah. Jeremiah I don't know. We'll see. Who who built the the spray gun for for painting the walls? Who cleaned up the mess? Who made the paint? How in the world do you make paint? Anybody here know how to make paint? Yeah. Anybody here know how to make the equipment for spray? You know, because that's how the, how they do it. You know, it's a big thing with a hose and. The hose. <laughs> don't get in the way, otherwise you. Blend. <clears throat> yeah, we don't know how to do any of that. Yeah, and yet, due to the kindness of other people who spend their their life and their time doing that, you know, we're in a room that doesn't look like, you know, bashed in drywall. Yeah. Or take the drywall away that doesn't look like the inside of Foswall blocks. Now imagine this, what this room would look like if the walls were Foswall blocks. Wouldn't be nearly as nice, would it? Who made the Foswall blocks? Okay, so when we look around, it's you know amazing. So it makes perfect sense to to cherish others and not cherish the self. Okay. So, 113, having seen the mistakes in cherishing myself and the ocean of goodness in cherishing others, I shall completely reject all selfishness and accustom myself to accepting others. Okay, so I'm going to accept others and be tolerant and kind to them. And reject my self-centered thought. Having seen the mistakes in cherishing myself. Okay, a few mistakes, but a lot of good things came out of cherishing myself. (laughs) And the ocean of good in cherishing others. Yeah, I pulled one over on those guys. I looked like. No, that's not cherishing them. Okay, I shall completely reject all self-centeredness and accustom myself to cherishing others. Okay, well, maybe not all self-centeredness. You got to work up to this gradually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just remember, Shanti Devas, in your office, in your room. Yeah. And kind I'm of looking and going, oh, mm, interesting. Yeah, you're just like me, eating, sleeping, and going to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, you, you take after me, just like me. He says, but the thing is, he also did something else besides eating, thinking, and eating, sleeping, and going to the bathroom. We, we kind of stick with the original three things. <laughs> 114, in the same way as the hands and so forth are regarded as limbs of the body, likewise, why are embodied creatures not regarded as limbs of life? That's such a good question, isn't it? Yeah. We think of our hands, you know, and our feet, which are totally different things, our hands and our feet, but They're both limbs of this body, so they help each other and function together. And in that way, they benefit each other. Okay. The legs can't do it all by themselves, and the hands can't do it all by themselves. Okay. I read one article about one um, U.S. soldier in Iraq that lost all four limbs in the war. Came back, no arms, no legs. In Walter Reed Hospital. Yeah. Can you imagine that? He was young, you know. You go off to fight war when you're young. He was just, I don't know, late teens, early 20s. Came back, no arms, no legs. Yeah. But the arms and legs... Help each other, they function together. Yeah. So seeing that everything we have, everything we know, everything we do depends on others. Aren't we all part of the same organism of life? Yeah. Aren't we? Why then? Yeah. We just look out for ourselves. What would happen? Yeah. If your hand, you know, think of whichever hand is dominant in you that you use all the time. You know, I'm right handed. Think if this hand said, you know, you got up, I got up in the morning, and this hand says, I don't feel like doing anything today. Okay. So I get up. Yeah, and then I have to go brush my teeth with my left hand. Yeah, and I have to feed my tree with my left hand and make water bowl offerings just with one hand. That's going to be good, holding the bowl and pouring the water with the same hand. Yeah, Having to do everything just with one hand, because this hand said, "I don't feel like it." Yeah, try. We should try that actually. (laughs) You know, try it and then think about. I mean, this is what happens when I say I don't feel like it. I don't want to make me. Yeah, remember that. That was a. A a good one. We said a lot when we were little. You didn't say it to your parents. At least if you had my parents, you didn't dare say that. If you valued your life, you know, but on the playground, make me. We alternated between it's not fair and make me. Yeah. Or it was, I'm teacher's pet, so you've got to be nice to me because otherwise I'll tell the teacher, and you'll get in trouble. Okay. So, yeah, what happens when somebody... If we're, if we just say, forget it. I don't care about you. So likewise, why are embodied creatures not regarded as limbs of life? Because we need each other to stay alive. Yeah. His holiness, um, years ago, he, he talked about the, uh, not the birds and the bees, but the bees and the ants. Okay. And how, in an ant colony or a beehive, you know, they have to work together. Yeah, the worker ants, you know, they go out and, you know, they. you can see them. They take all the pine needles and they take little bits of fluff and everything to build up the nest and then whatever they have to go to feed the queen, you know. Because you gotta feed the queen, otherwise the, the nest is not gonna be there. It's not gonna, you know, last. So the worker ants are all out doing things. Yeah. And they don't get up in the morning and say, I don't feel like it. I've been a working ant my whole life. You know? <laughs> I'm 65. I want to retire. Yeah, here, queen, you go do everything, you know. You just sat there all the time and just laid eggs. Yeah, do something for yourself. Do something for the rest of us. Yeah. But it's because they all work together that the, that the anthill survives. Yeah. Uh, we had two big anthills on the path walking up. I think some of them are under gravel now. And I don't know. Last year I didn't see much. I think they, they moved out. Yeah. They, uh, found some land near Lake Tahoe, <laughs> where it was beautiful. Except now there's, you know, too much snow there. Um, yeah, but if you, I used to stand, you know, and just look at the ants. Amazing what they do and how they communicate with each other, you know, going this way and that way and giving signals, you know, go to that needle and turn left and then go to, to that rock and turn right. And yeah, and how they cooperate with each other. And so his holiness used to say, you know, if, if ants and bees can cooperate like that, what about human beings? We have a human brain, human intelligence. Why can't we cooperate? Yeah. Why are we sitting there battling each other, killing each other, making each other miserable? What's the story? Yeah. So th- this is the story. This is the story. Why? Very easy, self-centered thought. Okay. So in the same way as the hands and so forth are regarded as limbs of the body, likewise, why are embodied creatures not regarded as limbs of life? Through acquaintance has the thought of I arisen towards this impersonal body. So in a similar way, why should it not arise towards other living beings? So Shanti Deva is saying that, And we're supposed to go, oh, yeah, Shanti Deva, you're right. Why should it not arise towards other living beings? And self-centered thought says, I'll tell you why it shouldn't (laughs) arise towards other living beings. Yeah, because if it does, then I'm going to have to do things I don't want to do. Yeah, I'm going to suffer. And that's the worst thing that could ever happen. Instead of thinking, when I help others, I feel joy and delight. Yeah. I mean, remember chapter one, or have we forgotten chapter one of this text? Chapter one, you know, his whole pitch is, you feel joy when you care about others. Bodhicitta makes your mind happy. Yeah. And it makes you more happy than your hot fudge sundae makes you. Yeah. But that was chapter one. That was a long time ago. (laughs) But, you know, to think about it, we go, Well, yeah, Shanti Deva was just saying that. Because he wants us all to be so magnanimous, but I just don't have it in me. You know, I can't cherish others more than self. It's just, it's impossible. Anyway, it says, towards this impersonal body. My body is not impersonal. My body is me. It's my cherished possession. I've got to take care of it. Because I'd learned my whole life that if I don't take care of myself, nobody else will. That's a big lie, isn't it? When you think about that, did you heard that? Did you hear that your whole life? You know? It's somewhere in, I don't know, some religious scripture or some some religious person said it. Yeah? If I don't take care of myself some philosopher some important person. You know, excuse me, whoever you are. I don't remember your name. So your glory is decreasing because I don't know your name. But anyway, I listened to what you said and you said, if I don't work for myself, nobody else is going to take care of me. Oh, yeah. So what Shanti Deva is saying, why is he saying the opposite? Through acquaintance has the thought of I arisen towards this impersonal body. Think of that. To look at this thing and say it's impersonal. It's impersonal. It's just a bunch of vegetable goo. It's just a bunch of molecules, you know, arranged in a certain shape. And on the inside, vegetable goo. Yeah, it's just an organic thing inside. What is personal about that? If this body were blown up in Ukraine and parts of it were lying all across the road, what's personal about that? Yeah. And when we really think about it, there's, there's nothing personal about this body. It's just, it's just material stuff. Yeah. And it's going to get recycled and who knows what it's going to come back as. Yeah. The, the atoms and molecules that are making up your body. And by the way, our cells change Every cell in the body changes every every seven years. Yeah. That's a, a misunderstanding of the original. but oh, you're not criticizing me. I read it in a book. <laughs> it's it's a misunderstanding of the original published result. Because think about it. Like our bones and there's plenty of cells in our body that don't uh, divide and reproduce as much. The average age of cells in our body is seven years so some of our cells, like our skin cells, uh, cycle very quickly and some cycle very, very slowly or not at all. Yeah. But they also change moment to moment, don't they? Uh, sure. But the statement of, well, everybody, every cell in our body has changed in seven years is a misunderstanding of the original oh. science. and often repeated by many people, misunderstanding of the science. Yeah, just because other people say it doesn't mean it's true. <laughs> but if I say it, <laughs> it doesn't matter whether I'm right or wrong. <laughs> I said it. And that's the way we act sometimes towards people. You know, I could get elected as president. I mean, Stop that. That if I say it, it's true. Yeah, your knowledge is rigged. (laughs) You have an alternative fact. Yes, I have alternative facts. No, you have alternative facts. I'm right. You have alternative facts. (laughs) Anyway, everything's changing every nanosecond. We can agree on that. (laughs) And I might actually believe what you said sometime. Yes. After every cell in my body has changed (laughs) more than once. Anyway. Okay. So it's just through acquaintance that we think this vegetable stuff is mine. Yeah. It's interesting in, in the lunch line. We look at the food, you know, and we each take some of the food and whatever you know, piece of broccoli we take then becomes part of us, okay? Now, it doesn't really matter which piece of broccoli I take. I could take this piece or this piece, but whichever one I take is going to become part of me, and the one I didn't take is become, going to become part of you, But what would happen if I took that piece of broccoli and you took the one I was going to take? Oh, how can that be? But actually, it doesn't really matter, does it, which piece of broccoli we took, which which grain of rice or couscous or, you know, whatever it is that we took. But as soon as we take it, it is mine. It's mine in the plate, and as soon as it goes in the mouth and the stomach, it's mine, and it makes our cells, which all change every 50 years. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, so you're looking at that food that is other. It's others' bodies. Yeah? And you're looking at this. This piece of broccoli is my body. That piece of broccoli is your body. Yeah? Yeah, so you you guys get the rice and the beans. I'm so happy. (laughs) Yeah? So, to really... You know, think about this. It's impersonal. There is nothing me or mine about this thing. Okay? So, if there's nothing me or mine really about this thing, it's just through acquaintance, then can't I do that for others? And here's where the example of the mother comes in, okay, because watch mothers—you know, not not just human mothers, but you know, kitten cat mothers and and cow mothers and everything. Yeah, watch them and how they care for their young, and the young, the the child, the baby is more important. I mean, just think, your mom got up in the middle of the night for at least two years every night to feed you, unless you had a nanny or something, or your dog brought the food. (laughs) But think about it, yeah? Would you, somebody said, I I get hungry two times every night. Will you get up and give me something to eat? Forget it. (laughs) I'm not doing that. But that's what our mothers do. Yeah. And if you watch Sura, the the dog down the hill, oh my goodness, she's had two uh, um, batches of puppies, litters of puppies. And I think she's pregnant again. But... You watch how she nurses those puppies, and the toll it takes on her body. I mean, she's just exhausted. She she hasn't even recovered from the first litter, when the second litter came, and now the I think the third litter is coming. Yeah, but she just she nurses all these puppies. She didn't have one baby. Yeah, first litter had ten. Second litter had 13. Okay. We can't even handle one screaming baby. But she, you know, these little pups would crawl all over her, and she would just lie there. I give my body to you. That's all, you know. And then when they got a little bit bigger, and she would start, you know, she would get up to go somewhere. They would still hold on to her, and she'd be walking, and they're still trying to nurse, and she's dragging them behind her. (laughs) Yeah, the puppies didn't get up. I'm hungry. I'm going to nurse. I don't care if you're walking. Oh, that must have hurt. Like, yeah. Okay. So, you know, to just... You know, in, in her eyes, those babies were, were, those puppies were more important. Yeah. And I remember my, my grandma, I asked her one time about, um, you know, the depression and everything. Cause my dad was, my dad was born in 21. So he was just a kid during the depression and he had an older brother, um, my uncle and, uh, and my grandmother said, because uh, lots of times they didn't have enough food, she said, "I just told the kids I had already eaten, and I gave them my food." Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. So to really uh, think about that, yeah. Through acquaintance has the thought of I arisen towards this impersonal body, which is just a whole big pile of food that turns into poop and pee. And me. Poop, pee, and me. What well, does that Bed, breakfast, and beyond. You know? <laughs> No, it's bed, bath, and beyond. So it's (laughs) poop, pee, and pee. Yeah. So in a similar way, why should it not arise towards other living beings? Amazing. Okay. So we're going to stop here for today. We'll, we'll, we'll get through this chapter eventually. Yeah. I, I had the idea that uh, uh, that I'd finish doing this chapter, and then uh, Geshe would do chapter nine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm just practicing exchanging self for others. <laughs> okay.